Hello and welcome to this month's episode of the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Lisandra Moore and I'm the host of this episode. Today I'm joined by Jesse Sun, who is a MindCore postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. Jesse is an expert on well-being and morality, and today we'll talk about some of her research on morality and moral development. Welcome, Jesse. It's so nice to have you here today for our episode. Thanks so much, Lasana. It's great to be here. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about uh, your research on morality and also well-being. And I just wanted to start out by asking you how you first became interested in doing this kind of research. So I initially um, became interested in well-being research through taking a, an undergraduate course on positive psychology in my second year at the University of Melbourne. And I later on became a research assistant at Penn's Positive Psychology Center when I was a visiting undergraduate student there during my study abroad. Um, so during that time I worked uh, as an RA for Peggy Kern. And then later on, I decided to keep pursuing my interest in well-being by doing my honors um, year with Luke Smiley in the personality processes lab where I looked at um, explanations for why it feels good to act extroverted. I feel like my transition into doing morality research, or rather adding morality to my research interests, comes from this interest in well-being, in that my past research has really focused on how personality and social relationships are related to people's own personal well-being. But I've increasingly realized that a lot of the um, biggest social issues in the world that impact well-being more broadly, whether that's global poverty or racism or um, climate change, which could impact the well-being of future generations, all of these are issues that require people to make personal sacrifices for the greater good and to become more moral. So I've increasingly realized that if I want to help promote well-being more broadly through my work, then I also need to understand moral psychology and what motivates people to make these personal sacrifices for others. It sounds like you have quite a journey through many like different experiences really that brought you to do this kind of research. And I also really like your approach to, to this research where you say, well, I also wanted to have some kind of impact. And of course, that's mm-hmm. probably something that most researchers want, but sometimes it's more of a distant prospect that would be nice if at some point uh, our research contributes something. But I really mm-hmm. like that it's it's it sounds at least for you to be more of a um, proximal uh, mm-hmm. outcome. I guess I've always had the, the hope that my research could have some kind of real world impact. And I'm not necessarily like confident that I, I can in the time I have like I have here in the field. If there's one thing that I've learned through grad school in the past few years is just realizing how hard it is to Firstly, find real things in some way that is generalizable beyond just like the narrow populations you're able to access in your studies. To be able to establish one finding in a really robust, generalizable way takes so many resources. That's one point of pessimism I have for being able to apply my research. And the second point of pessimism is just realizing how difficult it is to change people. So behavioral change is elusive and difficult. So I think I can start contributing knowledge about how these processes work, but I don't know how easy it is to actually shift people's moral behavior. Yeah, and I, th- I think that also, at least um, in, in the layman's uh, interpretation of real things, I think morality is also something that's in people's lives. It's it's really something mm-hmm. that's tangible in, in comparison, for instance, with other personality things or things that we study mm-hmm. in psychology that may be less concrete it's much easier to for 
a lay person when I tell them about their research to have opinions and to be able to contribute to a conversation about morality and and well-being um, because everyone has ideas about these things because they experience them in their own lives but it's gonna be like more much more difficult for a lay person to have a conversation about the like neural underpinnings of whatever process someone might be studying because it's not something they have conscious access to so I think in general a lot of the things in social personality are phenomena that ordinary people can connect with. And that's what's fun about, about being in, in this subfield in particular. Yeah, I can I can imagine that it might be really nice at the one hand to to have this connection directly with people's daily lives. At the other hand, I can also imagine that, that it might be difficult because you might not always be talking about exactly the same thing as what something mm-hmm. means in people's daily lives or in, in the common definition of something. So how is mm-hmm. this for morality? Is morality the same thing that we talk about in research as what mm-hmm. we talk about in, in our daily lives? Um, my view is that for something like morality, we do need to rely to some extent on what ordinary people conceptualize morality as being in order for the contract to have contract validity. Because if we as psychologists define decide to define morality in a certain way and say that this act is morally good and this act is morally bad, and no one in the general public agrees with those assessments, then we're probably not really assessing what like ordinary people consider to be moral behaviors. And I mean, of course, like people's subjective evaluation of what's morally good and bad isn't the only criterion that we should base our, our research on. We can also consult with philosophical understandings of morality and use like philosophy as a criterion for what is morally good or morally bad. But in general, if I want to, if I have to give like a very general definition of morality, there are two definitions that I like. Uh, there's one by two um, philosophers at Oxford, which is that briefly, mor- morality is a code that regulates one's relations to the well-being of others. I really like this definition because in the definition, it already emphasizes this intricate connection between morality and well-being in that it implies that in order to be a moral person, you have to care about other people's well-being and you can't just selfishly pursue your own ends. Another definition is by the moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt. He says that moral systems are interlocking sets of values, practices, institutions, and evolved psychological mechanisms that work together to suppress or regulate selfishness and make social life possible. So again, this definition emphasizes the importance of regulating your own selfishness for the greater good, for the good of a group or for, uh, I guess, society as a whole. Another like a general way in which I think about morality is that it's the study of what's right or wrong, um, about what is ethical and what should be considered virtuous and admirable. Um, and in all of these definitions, we probably notice I haven't specified which domains of morality are relevant, which behaviors are morally relevant. And that is because these these specifics really do depend uh, on which culture you're studying, which is why it's also important to 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 like ask the people in that in a given culture what they consider to be morally relevant. And I think that's both a one of the most fascinating parts of moral psychology, as well as one of the greatest difficulties. This cultural and also within culture variability in what should be considered morally good or morally bad. Yeah, this is really interesting. And I also really like the different definitions, um, but it does make me wonder, In, for instance, in your research, what would you focus on? Is it important mm-hmm. if people have the moral values or if they have moral behavior, even perhaps when that moral behavior does not stem from 
uh, moral values. In my own research, I have to date mostly focused on moral character traits. Um, so like basically personality traits that are relevant to morality. In the future, I would like to look more at moral behaviors, but I've, I've used moral character traits as a starting point. And one reason to focus on character traits or like broad values is it is easier to agree on um, the moral relevance of a broad value like compassion and to say whether someone is a compassionate person than it is to specify which exact behaviors count as compassionate or not. So it's, it is easier to reach agreement uh, when it comes to these broad, somewhat more abstract ideas than on the specifics. I, I want to give like another example from the domain of like harm or care. So there's this theory in moral psychology called moral foundations theory, which specifies different like values that people might base their moral judgments on. One of them is the domain of harm and care. So in general, both liberals and conservatives care about the value of harm care. So like, was someone hurt? Are you being compassionate and sympathetic to someone? But they disagree about which specific behaviors would reflect that domain. For example, for the issue of abortion, a liberal might be thinking more about the harm to the mother uh, um, if, if she doesn't want to have a child. Um, so that's why she should have a right to abort. But then, but conservatives are often obviously thinking more about the harm done to the unborn child. So there are differing judgments of which specific behaviors are like morally good or morally bad based on based on this difference in who the victim is. I'm not sure if this is the case, but it, this also seems something that sort of ties back into what you just said about different cultures. That so maybe mm -hmm. at the very broad level, uh, they sort of agree. I think mm -hmm. this is also if you look at different religions, for instance, they all uh, agree that you should be good to. to uh, your neighbor, um, mm -hmm. but maybe if you have more specific items, then you would find differences. Is this also sort mm -hmm. of reflect, reflected there right. um, in, in your empirical, uh, or at least your knowledge of empirical work? Mm -hmm. I, my work hasn't looked at the differences in agreement on specific behaviors. Um, I would want, I would actually say that even though there are clear differences, individual and cultural differences in moral judgments, this might, this kind of glosses over the common agreement, the like large amounts of agreement on some specific moral principles, like almost everyone agrees around the world that it would be morally wrong to punch someone in the face with no good reason. This is an example that Paul Bloom gave in his uh, in his book, um, Just Babies, I think. <laughs> um, so like there is some agreement on some behaviors that would be considered morally bad across all cultures. So I think we should always remember that there is some common ground even, even when there is like cultural variability. One other way of like, so I can tell you how I've approached trying to look at what's considered morally relevant within a given culture. And one way of doing this is in the context of studying moral character, how I've operationalized it is, I have taken a set of facets, personality facets from major personality in inventories like the BFI2. And I've also added in some items from measures that are developed to measure moral character. Um, and one of them is the moral characteristics questionnaire. And I've also taken facets from the Hexaco model relating to honesty, humility. And basically I reword each item in terms of asking about its moral relevance. For example, I might ask, I, I would ask participants, um, to what extent would it be morally good or morally bad to have high levels on this trait? 
for example, to what extent would it be morally good or morally bad to be outgoing and sociable? And then the response scale would range from very morally bad to very morally good. And the midpoint would be neither morally bad nor morally good. And he would ask the same question about items like, to what extent would it be morally good or morally bad to be helpful and unselfish with others? So using this method, by norming each of these items on moral valence and asking, you know, 100 or 200 people from a target population uh, to answer this, we can take the average scores on these and basically like compute what the moral relevance of each trait is. And obviously there's going to be some individual variability in people's responses. And we can also look at that through the standard deviation. Uh, but it also the means do give us a sense of which traits are considered to be more morally valued in that culture. And they give us a basis for saying what counts as moral personality um, in these participants' minds. All right. Thank you so much for providing some sort of at least working definition of morality and did, well explaining to me the difference between morality in terms of values and in terms of behavior and all the difficulties that arise when we when we talk about that. Um, and you also mentioned some at some points during this uh, explanation your own research already. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're currently up to, what kind of research you are uh, doing, but also research that you're planning to do in the, the near future regarding morality? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure thing. Right now, um, I'm you know a, a postdoc at Penn. Um, my primary collaborator at the moment is Jeff Goodwin. Um, back in 2018, um, when I was deciding that I really want to pursue these interests in moral psychology. At Davis, there wasn't anyone who was really studying, like who would really call themselves a moral psychologist, even though there were people at Davis who like had done projects on morality, including Samin, my advisor, um, and, and Vipka Blydorn, who was also in the department at the time. But I decided I wanted to do a lab visit to get more specific training in moral psychology from someone who identifies as a moral psychologist. Samin, like was amazing and basically let me like let me go off and visit Jeff Goodwin for a semester. Jeff is at Penn. That semester I you know I moved to Philly, stayed here for a semester and um, we managed to start a project together um, on the idea of moral self-improvement and we ended up getting that um, published in, in Psych Science and it's a paper that probably the paper that I'm most proud of to date because I think it really integrates my background in personality, as well as my new interests in, in morality. And it's raised lots of interesting follow-up questions. The basic idea was that we wanted to know whether people want to be more moral. And we looked at this by looking at where, how much people want to change different personality traits that ranged in how morally relevant they were. And this was building off past work by people like Nate Hudson and Erica Bransky, um, who have looked at how much people like want to change their personality. But I basically added on this moral piece um, and found that people were less interested in changing moral traits than less morally relevant traits. Um, so this was a pretty interesting finding. And it's really sparked a lot of follow-up questions about how moral improvement occurs in, in the first place. Like what would inspire people to become more moral? How do we how do we combat this tendencies towards what Eric Schwitzgabel calls moral mediocrity? And is it possible that people don't want to become more moral because they have beliefs about how it would impact their well-being? So, so I've I've also become interested in integrating these interests in both well-being and morality together. And so that's that's what you're currently pursuing then. So work on morality and, and well-being. 
So I can tell you a little bit about like kind of two strands of, they're connected, but um, I, I kind of separate them out into the first, first strand on morality and well-being, and really trying to integrate these two, these two fundamental aspects of a good life, seeing how they relate to each other. Is it the case that a moral person is happier? What are the well-being consequences of becoming more moral? And what do people believe, believe about how morality and well-being are connected? And then a second line of research on moral improvement. So the causes and consequences of, of moral improvement. Yeah, that sounds really fascinating. I would also really love to hear any findings that you have. Right now, I'm approaching this question um, initially by looking at how moral character relates to well-being. In this study, I, can, I mentioned a few minutes ago how, I, how I've been thinking about measuring morality um, in terms of asking people to rate which traits are most morally relevant, more, I can, you know, more morally good or morally bad than others. And so I use that, that strategy to to get more, more relevance ratings of a number of personality traits. And then I basically selected the traits that were rated as most morally relevant. And these turned out to be general morality, respectfulness, compassion, fairness, honesty, loyalty, and dependability. So these are the, the moral traits that are included in this study. And to measure moral character, I decided to use informant reports instead of self-reports. Because when it comes to trying to understand whether more people are happier, we don't want it to just be the case that happy people have an unrealistically positive view of their own moral character, or they just have a general halo bias. So um, that's why I didn't want to just correlate self-reports with self-reports. And that's generally a thing I try to avoid doing anyway, because of common method variants. I basically have two studies so far and a third study that's in progress. Uh, in study one, we have two samples of college students from Penn and UC Davis. They nominate up to four informants who know them well. And we ended up with around 450 participants across the two samples combined, that is, who had at least one informant. And these informants were mostly friends, but we also had some, some romantic partners and some parents. The key finding is that across both samples, people whose close others saw them as being more moral on this multi-dimensional measure of moral character, self-reported having a greater sense of meaning in life. But I only found an association between moral character and subjective well-being in one of the samples. So there was less consistent evidence about whether moral character is also related to happiness, as in positive feelings, and a lack of negative feelings. So from this initial study, I thought that maybe it's the case that we do see more robust and consistent evidence that morality is related more to meaning than to, sub than to subjective well-being. Um, there were other limitations of a study that I wanted to address, including the use of just college students and in a specific, you know, North American context. And another limitation is that by using close others and self-selected informants, people, there, there could be other potential confounds as well. For example, close others may also still have overly optimistic views of our own, of our morality. So in a second study, as part of a larger collaboration with Jan Yakimovich and Wen Wu, I had access to a large sample of employees at a high-tech train development company in China. Um, this was a situation where um, the, we, had a, we had a round robin design where every employee was nested within a team of between four and seven team members. And so every person served as both a target and an informant 
in that everyone reported self-reported their own well-being and then they rated the moral character of their fellow um, teammates. So everyone had between three and six informant reports based on their co-worker reports. I thought this would be useful because co-workers are probably less motivated to be to, to view us in a positive light compared to our close others. So maybe they they have a more clear-eyed view of our morality. And it was also good to do this in a different cultural context in China. Because of uh, space constraints, uh, because of, of how big the study was, we I used a 10-item adjective-based measure of moral character, where I just asked people to rate the teammates on single adjectives, like how honest are they, how trustworthy are they, how kind, helpful, generous, etc. So that was a difference between from the first and the second study. Surprisingly, I just found null effects across the board. I didn't find any evidence that team member rated moral character was associated with self-reported well-being, either subjective well-being or meaning in life. And by the way, this is across over 700 employees. (laughs) So it was a pretty well-powered test, test of this idea. A huge reason for why I think this happened, which I was also surprised by, was that I saw almost no agreement. I mean, not almost no, but it was like 0.1. The Omega reliability was around 0.16 for like how much team members agreed with each other about who was more or less moral in their team. So co-workers just weren't agreeing with each other about who the most moral team members were within a given team. And this surprised me because past work did show that there is some decent amount of interjudge agreement on moral character. But I have a, a few reasons, uh, like ideas for why this may not have been the case in, in this context. But I think I was surprised by just how little agreement there was. Yeah, I can imagine. I would also think about maybe it's almost more like a, a personal trait of the rater, like how trustworthy mm-hmm. do you find people in general and that people have their own reporting styles rather mm-hmm. than it actually being related to the person that they're rating. But um, right. I would be really interested in hearing your other thoughts on this. Yeah, so there are um, definitely perceiver effects um, in, in these situations. I can't remember the, the social, I, I didn't end up using the social relations model because there was such little target variance that I could not use it. <laughs> but I think like when I tried running it the first time, the perceiver variance wasn't overly high. It was maybe like eight or 10%, but I have to go back and check that. But yeah, so, so perceiver variance is, is an issue in these kinds of studies. But then the question is, why do we see um, such little agreement in, in a like, little signal in this study when it seems to, there seems to be something happening in study one? And I think one reason is that the adjective-based measures are somewhat more vague. So there's more room for hallowing and just like reporting styles to emerge because asking someone like, how honest is this person? is much more vague and people can use whatever information they want or just provide like a less considered judgment than if you ask, do you agree that this person would steal a million dollars if they could get away with it? To what extent do you agree with that? So that is a much more concrete statement that you have to like actually think about um, versus just saying, oh, they're honest, they're kind, they're generally good. So I'm quite puzzled by these findings. So we're trying to figure out what's going on. But one, one thing that I think might be happening is that maybe everyone who's you know, employed and working at this company and hasn't gotten fired and is performing well, it's probably already fairly moral. If people are uh, high-functioning people who are working at an elite job where there are high standards and high-performance pressure, probably, like, don't have a lot of room to get away with immoral behavior or they're not the kinds of people who were immoral to start with. So it might be much easier to judge whether someone is, like, a terrible person versus a good person. And maybe there are some standouts who are also easy to observe. 
but maybe in this middling range of morally good enough or morally pretty good, it's harder to distinguish who's better or who's worse. So that's another working theory I have for this lack of agreement. Really interesting. Also, especially regarding the first one, in one way, it would actually be really, really good if people have no bias based on whether they like someone or not. Mm-hmm. But in this yeah. case, of course, you yeah, it would be a very logical thing that might explain mm-hmm. um, the null findings. Oh, yeah, I should have said also like that, this idea that um, study one could reflect liking. I was thinking that if that, if that could explain it, if, if it was a case that we're just measuring liking in study one, and if it only matters that close others like you, but how much your close workers like you doesn't matter for your well-being, then that would have explained the difference between the two samples based on just like the type of informant. Mm-hmm. But that's not, okay. what, that's not what happened. So I'll have to go ahead and do more exploratory analysis to see if there's any insight to be gained. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very curious about what mm-hmm. will uh, come out of that. But as you mentioned, yeah. it's still ongoing work. Mm-hmm. Still ongoing work. And we still have a study three that's happening right now. But basically, both studies wanted to measure, like, sample fairly well-adjusted people. So either people who are college students and probably functioning fine, mostly fine in life, um, or people, employees at this, at this high-tech company. Um, so we're probably not really capturing anyone who's extremely immoral or extremely moral. So I designed study three as a way to try to capture these extremes a little bit more. And how I'm doing this is I have a group of participants who I'll call nominators. And these nominators are asked to think of uh, six people in their lives who they personally know. Um, Two of them have to be people who they think um, are among the most more people they know. Two people among the least more people they know. And two people who are just morally average. And we get them to give us their contact information. We then email these targets, not telling them who they were nominated by or why they were nominated, um, obviously. And we ask them to participate in our study, you know, for $10 and a personality report. <laughs> and we ask them to report on their well-being. So I'll be able to look at the differences between the three groups um, in well-being, but also to validate the nomination procedure and provide a continuous measure of moral character as well. We have these Um, target participants also nominate their own informants. But I'm hoping ultimately that even if the nominations are noisy, we still have some widening of the distribution that we didn't previously have. Yeah. I can also imagine for a participant, a really fun study to just Mm -hmm. think about like who in my life would I consider as being like upstanding in terms Mm -hmm. of morality and who would I consider down in the dumps basically. Yeah. I'm, I'm very curious about what you will find in this study. You also mentioned a second line of research on moral improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, can you also tell me more about the research that you're doing uh, there? Uh, the second line of research on moral improvement follows up from like my uh, my psych science paper on people not wanting to be more moral. <laughs> and I think this is a really important topic. Moral improvement is an important topic because we need people to be more moral for the greater good to address all the various societal issues that we face. But contemporary moral psychology research really provides very few answers to the question of how moral improvement would occur, whether people can become more moral and what the consequences would be. Because a lot of research has really just painted this very pessimistic portrait of humans as being moral hypocrites, like we want to look moral without being moral, of seeking only moral mediocrity, so wanting to be about as moral as others around us, but no more than that. And of just having this general arsenal of strategies for feeling moral, even when you're not acting moral. So I, th- I feel like there's been this negativity bias in moral psychology in that it's 
focused on documenting all of these ways that humans are bad, but not really being very solution focused in how do we become better and how could we become better. So that's kind of my positive psychology background coming in and saying, I think we also need some solutions and, and some constructive work in this space. And the reason why I think it's, it's not a lost cause is that we clearly do see examples of people changing for the better and of people who are willing to make pretty big personal sacrifices, whether that's people who have decided to become vegan or vegetarian. This often happens in adulthood or especially in college of people who have donated a kidney because they feel like that's the right thing to do to a stranger. And of people who, in, a, in the effective altruism community, who have decided to donate substantial amounts of their income, you know, between 10 and 50%, 50, 50 50% in the most extreme cases. So I'm really fascinated by like what it is that inspired these people to make these, take on these substantial uh, moral commitments and in, in large and small ways, there are a lot of interesting questions in, in this space. Me, um, Jeff Goodwin and I are currently working on a grant proposal for the next round of Templeton found it f- funding. So the idea is that I'm currently thinking about is social influences on moral improvement, because I think it's unlikely that people will just wake up one morning and decide, I want to be more moral. <laughs> I, I don't think that's a thing that happens, that moral improvement probably doesn't happen in a vacuum. There needs to be some kind of like external stimulus that gets us thinking about our moral obligations and how we could become better and the ways that we might not be as good as we could be. And social influence is obviously a huge topic in social psychology. It's been shown to be important in a number of different domains, but I think it's really been neglected in moral psychology uh, in terms of like how other people could influence us to be better or how they could get in the way of our goals to become more moral. So I'm, I'm interested in answer, answering a few different questions about social influence. One is about which kinds of social relationships are most morally influential and why. So some questions, some open questions in the space include whether moral influence most often occurs in the context of close relationships, like our friends and our family members, as well as romantic partners, or does it most often come from moral authorities like religious leaders or ethics professors who write popular books about our moral obligations, like Peter Singer. I'm also interested in, from a personality perspective, what are the traits and the behaviors of morally influential people? Because there are probably like a lot of moral exemplars out there who are really quite morally excellent, but they differ in how much they try to and how much they're able to influence other people. Because there might be some people who are very morally influential, but they really try to keep it to themselves and they're not really trying to influence others and others who engage in persuasion attempts, but fail. And then others who actually manage to convince others around them to follow in their lead. So I'm really interested in like what makes someone morally influential. One question in this space is about moral exemplars. I think this is really interesting tension in the moral psychology literature about reactions to moral excellence or morally motivated people. On the one hand, there's this work on moral elevation, which suggests that when you witness someone doing something morally excellent, you feel inspired and motivated to do the same thing and to like also be more pro-social. So this would be like an inspirational hypothesis as a reaction to more exemplarity. But on the other hand, there's been some work by Monin on this idea of do-gooder derogation, that when you see someone who's being morally motivated or like when you see someone who's vegetarian and you're not, you might feel threatened and you're worried that they're going to judge you and so you derogate them. So I think this is interesting tension about like, when are moral exemplars inspiring versus 
threatening or otherwise unappealing. Uh, so I'm interested in looking at the traits that might differentiate inspiring from an, from ineffective moral exemplars. Yeah, sounds really cool to learn more about this. And also because it feels like what you described from the work that has been previously done, that the focus is really on the person being influenced rather than the person who is the influencer. So mm-hmm. we're talking about this this mm-hmm. person that's somewhere who is doing some influencing, but we're not really taking them in the research, basically. It would be really interesting to see more of that. Yeah, this is like a difficult thing to study. I feel like all of these questions that I'm trying to answer are very difficult to study. And I often think to myself, am I trying to answer unanswerable questions? <laughs> but I'm trying and we have to start somewhere. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And I, I think in many cases, the most difficult questions to answer are the ones that really mm-hmm. uh, are worthwhile to answer. I'm very happy that you're doing the difficult work uh, for mm-hmm. all of the other people who would be interested in studying <laughs> this, but don't want to do it because it's difficult. I think I think I agree with that, that maybe I'm, w- I'm wondering if like there's a trade-off between tractability and impact or whether they are actually orthogonal dimensions and I need to try to focus my efforts towards like both tractable and high impact projects. Yeah you mentioned that you're uh, writing a grant proposal for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Are you already c- conducting some work in this line of research or is this still really mm-hmm. um, in the pipeline? So it's mostly in the pipeline. Um, I think that I'm really excited about some of these studies that we're proposing in the grant and we can definitely get started on them even if we don't get this particular grant at least the ones that are cheap and um easier to do than the difficult ones. But I do have one project that's been in the pipeline for a while um, where we're interested in looking at lay conceptions of moral improvement. What would people do to become more moral? And we have a large sample of participants who took a survey on the yourmorals.org website. And we asked them, what is one thing that you could do in order to become more morally good? So we just asked them to write one thing. This is in collaboration with Pete Meindl, um, Josh Wilt, Hannah Watkins, and Jeff Goodwin. And what we've done as an initial start is we have coded these open-ended responses for various things. One thing that we're interested in is the domain of a moral improvement. So we've looked at a range of moral virtues um, or traits that these changes might reflect. And we've also coded whether people are mostly talking about broad character changes or specific behaviors. We find so far that people mostly talk about moral change in terms of broad character improvements. I can't remember the exact like percentage, but it was over it was an overwhelming percentage of people who were saying things like, I want to be more compassionate rather than I want to donate more to charity, or I want to I want to be nicer to my my mother. We we coded for whether it was like broad trait versus specific or contextualized behavior. And within and we also found that the most common domain was compassion. But they also want to improve things like their honesty, patience, um, and their understanding of other people's perspectives instead of being judgmental. Um, in addition, we, we asked people a bunch of follow-up questions about these open-ended change goals, like whether they want to engage in these changes to help their close others or or more distant targets in their moral circles. For example, would you want to do this for your family or for animals? or for other people in your country, or for like all beings in existence. Can't remember like exactly what we found in, in that. It's been a while since I looked at these data. Um, we also looked at whether people think this change would have positive or negative consequences on themselves. 
kind of just looking at the, the lay views on the well-being consequences of becoming more moral. And we generally found that people thought this would have very positive consequences for themselves and not very many negative consequences. So this suggests that people, at least for self-selected moral improvement goals, people think it wouldn't, it would be good for their well-being, which is like interesting, but I don't know if it generalizes beyond self-selected moral improvement goals. And I think one of the most interesting findings is when we asked people, who would this change benefit the most? And we had three options. It was myself, other people, or like other entities that aren't like other people, for example, animals or the environment. And around 50% or more selected myself. So I thought this is really funny because, you know, the whole point of moral improvement is really for the greater good and for other people, but people still think that they would be the greatest beneficiaries of their own moral improvement. That's really interesting. Pretty interesting. Yeah. 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 I, I'm also very interested in hearing more because it's super fascinating also to hear that people in general, I think this is maybe not unique to only this uh, this particular improvement goal, but that the goals are so ambitious that people think, well, I'm, I'm not just going to change this particular behavior, I'm going to change my personality, which of course is, it's probably easier to just say, well, I'm going to visit my mom every week from now on uh, and, and become mm-hmm. more moral through that than to say, right. I'm going to become more compassionate in general. But it's really interesting to see that people actually have these very ambitious goals. Ambitious, but vague. Yes. <laughs> and I think for me, vagueness is one of the issues with, we actually asked people like to, to name one specific step they could take as a specific strategy. And I, we can't use these data because they're, they're, too, they're way too vague. People just couldn't really name specific strategies. So I think people have these like idealistic ideas of what, what improvement would look like, but they have no idea what it would look like concretely. Mm-hmm. So that might be why people aren't really pursuing moral improvement because they haven't really thought about what it would look like. Yeah, because apparently they do think that it's going to benefit themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they think mm-hmm. they're going to be more happy or at least their well-being is going to be better. But they and haven't really thought about the concrete steps and the potential yeah. sacrifices that might be involved. Yeah, exactly. It does at least provide some points for maybe implementing it, this into some kind of intervention or um, mm-hmm. kind of program to make people more morally mm-hmm. good. Yeah, I think like one thing I'm interested in looking at in the future would be to integrate some of this work with the goal pursuit and goal setting literature. For example, it would be really interesting to see whether asking people to set more concrete goals and set implementation intentions, whether those could, that could help people to better achieve their moral goals. Yeah, that would be really interesting. All right, thank you so much for, for sharing this line of research, even if it's still ongoing. I'm just wondering, and I think throughout the interview and also in this this last bit you've already mentioned this but can you discuss some of the major challenges uh, at least that you see uh, moving forward with moral hmm. development research i think one of the challenges of trying to do research in a relatively new space where like there hasn't i mean obviously there has been a lot of work in there's a there's a journal called the journal of moral education so it's like it's not a new field but a lot of this work has occurred in the context of moral character education of like K to 12 children and like through classroom programs, for example, it's not clear like how that would generalize to our understanding of moral development through adulthood. I think one of the difficulties of working in this newer space of moral improvement in adulthood is they are trying to define the space because there are so many different directions that I could take in this. Like the question of what inspires people to become more moral? 
there are so many different approaches I could take or different things I could focus on or different outcomes, like which more behaviors do I want to focus on? Or like, do I want to focus more on changing more behaviors or getting people to develop their moral traits? I think defining the scope and figuring out what's tractable and feasible is one difficulty. I think a bigger difficulty is which is behavioral change in general and trying to figure out which interventions would have like are feasible in the real world like what is something that I mean I have ideas for what could make a difference to people's moral behavior if we you know brought people into the lab and made them do things but in the real world I don't know if that's going to be a scalable way of implementing moral improvement which is why I'm interested in focusing on the social influence angle because I think that close relationships in particular are an important context for moral influence. And, and that's something that actually might happen in real world relationships. And so if we can better understand what makes someone a more effective moral influencer, then these are some strategies that people who want to be more morally influential could actually implement. So like really just trying to think about what is something that could be more translatable and, and scalable in the real world. And I think, yeah, you also mentioned throughout the interview several times that really how to measure morality was was a challenge because, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, many different approaches have different limitations, uh, some of which mm-hmm. only arose after gathering the data. So is this something that you're also struggling with or, or seeing as a, as a challenge in your future work? Measurement is a challenge, especially when it comes to like social desirability issues in the, in the things I'm studying. For example, one behavior I'm interested in studying is vegetarianism. So if I want to study whether people who participate in this intervention are actually eating less meat, it's kind of hard to figure out what people really ate. One strategy I'm thinking of doing is asking them to take a photo of their meal <laughs> and then like and also report the, like whether that, that meal contained meat or not. But nowadays with so many meat replacement products, you can just say, oh, that was, that was vegan chicken. <laughs> so that is a potential issue of like of the reliability of stuff report when you, you, maybe people don't want to look bad in front of the experimenter. Um, so that's always going to be an issue. Uh, but like there are just things that we, we can't follow participants around and look at what they're really eating all the time. I think that one really innovative strategy that I, I want to know if there's any way to implement this in other contexts is and Eric Schwarzgabel had a recent paper where, where like he and Peter Singer and, and like his other, other collaborators looked at whether ethics classes in a university philosophy class could reduce people's meat intake. Opposed to having to read a paper about the moral arguments against meat eating and then discussing it in a, in a like tutorial section, whether that made students less likely to eat meat. And he had a really clever measurement approach where at this university, the, they had a meal card system where they could like top up their cards with money and then the transactions were all recorded through the system so they could actually see exactly what students bought for their meals. I would love to know if there's a way to implement this to get this kind of transaction data in other settings. I can't think of like other systems that use this, but that's like a, a great way to actually objectively measure whether they bought things that had meat in them. Yeah, that, that's really smart. I can totally imagine that of course, social desirability is always a problem, but especially when you're asking people, and I think in many questions, it's very clear that it's it's a moral question. Like, are you honest? Mm-hmm. Are you trustworthy? That people are, are not very likely mm-hmm. to say, well, I'm not, I'm not honest and I'm not trustworthy. Right. I can totally imagine that this is a major challenge. I think another, another challenge, like specifically related to social influence is 
there's always a, the possibility of reactance or backlash against someone and trying to push their moral views onto you. It's a big question of how people are able to be morally persuasive without inducing this kind of reactance. Maybe what we need to do is to start focusing on the recipient and helping them to become more open-minded and less threatened and to make them feel like it's not we're not attacking their moral character, but like just giving suggestions for how they could they could do more for others. So I think that's a big question of how we how we get people to be less defensive. Probably lowering people's defenses is the first step to getting them to be receptive to the possibility of moral improvement. Yeah, it sounds like you have your work cut out for you, you and all the other uh, moral development and, and morality researchers. Thank you so much for joining me today and also telling me about your very interesting work and all of the work that you're planning to do and the ideas that you have for the future. I really enjoyed talking to you. Great. Thanks, Asana. This was so much fun. Hello, this is René editor of the European Journal of Personality. After one month's break, here is a brief summary of two recent papers published in the European Journal of Personality, online first. And this time, folks, it is a self-esteem special. Well, values and self-esteem are among the most studied constructs of personality psychology, and perhaps even psychology more generally. So, it would seem like trying to link them with one another could hardly produce novel and interesting findings at this point. But Hong Wei Du from the Beijing Normal University and his colleagues proved me wrong. In a recent paper, based on a very large sample of Americans, they took a new angle on the old question and showed that the correlation between values and self-esteem among individuals varies meaningfully based on where the individuals live. For example, in those U.S. states where more people endorse traditional values on average, individuals' valuing of traditions was more strongly positively associated with their self-esteem. Or in states where people valued conformity less on average, the individuals' valuing on conformity was more negatively associated with their self-esteem. That is, statistically speaking, it helps one's self-esteem to hold traditional values when surrounded by others who value traditions, and to be non-conformist when surrounded by other rebels. So, not only is self-esteem linked with values, the links may depend on which communities people live. But what about the jobs people are doing? Samantha Kraus and Ulrich Horth performed a meta-analysis of over 30 studies to find if self-esteem is linked with job experiences. Specifically, they asked if in employment status, job satisfaction, success, income, resources and stressors at job predicted changes in self-esteem during subsequent years, and the other way around, whether self-esteem predicted changes in these job-related variables. They found evidence for both kinds of associations. Higher self-esteem often predicted favorable changes in work experiences, and the other way around, better work experiences predicted a subsequent uplift in self-esteem. So, good things tend to predict more good things to come. It is important to point out, however, that the correlations were very weak in magnitude. So, before someone starts to worry about the consequences of maybe some poor work experiences for their self-esteem, it may help to realize that the statistical trend does not really apply to most individuals in any perceptible manner. So, for most people, 
some bad job experiences do no harm for their self-esteem. On the other hand, of course, good work experiences and appropriately high self-esteem surely are useful things to have and can improve the quality of life.